Hello, and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. On the Right Track is a podcast by two South Asian debut authors, Emily Varga and Sara M. Rana, that addresses the little known secrets of publishing, marketing, and behind the scenes of traditional publishing. We interview guests who are in different stages, jobs, or careers in the traditional publishing industry in order to provide our listeners with an insider's look. Hello, and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. Today, we are so excited to have an amazing guest, Gretchen Schreiber. Yay! Gretchen Schreiber grew up between the hills of Kansas and the hospitals of Minnesota, but now calls the hills of Los Angeles home. After getting her MFA from USC Film School, she now works as a professional bookworm for Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's media company. She is always down to run away to Disneyland or a bookstore. Welcome, Gretchen. We are so excited to chat to you. Welcome. Whoa. <laughs> I'm awkward. It's fine. <laughs> oh, we're all awkward here, but we're going to have the best conversation. I can already taste it. So we always start our guests off with a way to situate the listener into kind of how they got to where they are today. I think the funny thing is that they've only sort of started talking about is that I applied to film school because I was too afraid to apply to a low residency writing for children MFA. And I want to be like clear that I decided to apply to the number one program in the world for film because I was too afraid to be like this like little tiny MFA program in Minneapolis where I was. Oh, that's crazy. And it was because I, and I'm sure my copy editor, if they ever hear this, is like, oh, yeah, that girl can't grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Neither can I. You don't need grammar to be a good storyteller. But it was at the point, and I had had so many CPs just be like, girl, you can't. Like, your grammar is atrocious. You love a run-on. Do you know what a comma is? And I was like, well, okay, so I can't write. (laughs) So I'm going to go do this other thing. I'm so condescending. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so I applied to film school and sort of came out to California to be in film school. And I did two years, and I had, like, a great time and kind of, I think, lost myself a little bit in terms of like, I knew what I was like, even, even if like film school was my second choice, which sounds like so like, cringe, but like, I was like, I want to do TV, I want to make like books into television shows, I was really passionate about like, network television, which all of my very fancy classmates were like, why do you want to make television for the networks? Cable is where it's at, darling. Um, (laughs) What sounds like you were just really passionate about storytelling in like all its forms. And like storytelling that like everyone can access, which is network television. And I kind of let that go trying to fit in with all my cool kids. And so it really like when I graduated, I like tried to find a job. I didn't find a job. I entered the like whole like millennial gig economy and I did everything under the sun. It feels like I did metadata input, which was like 
the highest paying job, like $28 an hour to like watch TV and like tag things and be like, this character is in this scene. And this is where we are. Like I caught up on so much Grey's Anatomy. I read scripts for a fellowship. So I was reading like 12 scripts a week for six months <laughs> and like just having to like analyze them for story. That's a crazy number. Yeah. Like it was, you know, I worked at a literary festival out here And then also on top of all of that, I had a job at a bookstore, which was like sort of like my part-time baseline, like just doing everything casual, all the things through this all, I was like writing. So in my grad school, I wrote my thesis, which was a retelling of Peter Pan in a modern day. And the idea was like, what happens if Wendy comes back, but her brothers do not? And in the the modern day, if a girl comes back talking about fairies after she's been essentially kidnapped, what is the story? Who believes her? And her brothers are missing. So the question is like, is she a killer? Is she not? I love that. So yeah, so that was like my MFA thesis. That sounds very dope. Yeah. I I thought it was. I didn't realize like originally that you got your start in like kind of fantasy. Yes. So I wrote that. And like, even like during my defense, they were like, well, you write uncommonly well for like the teen audience they were like maybe don't look at the adults but you should really focus on the teens and I was like oh I can do that and so through all of that when I like graduated I wrote another I'd written a second pilot which I kind of call like Gilmore Girls meets National Treasure because I'm kind of obsessed with mother-daughter stories I think they're really fascinating and highly underutilized by like the storytelling community I just think there's so much nuance and like interest there I have a really great relationship with my mom but like it's so often you don't see anyway I can like as, as Emily may know I have many a soapbox and I it doesn't take a lot to get me off on one but we're focused so through that I wrote a third pilot and this third pilot it was Game of Thrones era so everyone was writing these like epic fantasy pilots and I decided that I wanted to write what I called the anti-Game of Thrones pilot, which is that <laughs> it all took place in one place. And at the beginning of the pilot and what they call the teasers, which is like the first opening scenes, you were running through this city and you hop the castle gate. And once you enter the palace gate, we don't leave. The final shot of the series would be her opening the gates and exiting. So I wanted to take it all place in one place. Oh. And then, yeah, it was like, it was like conceptually, I was like, I see this. I love the idea of this. This sounds so cool. The other like part of it that I was like anti-Game of Thrones is that I wanted things worse than death because I was like, it's too easy to kill characters. Like, yes, I, agree. I want death to be a mercy. So started to create different rules of like, what are things that would be terrible to do to people? I think girls, much if, if you're like a horse girl or a whale girl, you're either like a Titanic girl or an Anastasia girl. Um, <laughs> I am completely an Anastasia girl, like hands down. I was completely an Anastasia girl. I'm obsessed with Russian history. So I picked this sort of Russian history touchstone because the palace that I was basing it on is the Winter Palace which has like 1500 rooms. So if you're thinking like 100 episodes of television, I can go to 15 rooms in every episode and we will never see the same room. That's something I've always wanted to visit. Same. So I wrote this pilot and I had a whole bunch of friends read the pilot and they were like, Gretchen, we really love this. Comma, however, I feel like I've been dropped into the third season and I don't know what's going on. (laughs) And I was like, oh. (laughs) And they were like, what you should do is write this as a book. (laughs) And I was like, Hello, darkness, my old friend. (laughs) And so I 
wrote a book in one year. I wrote almost half a million words. I did three page one rewrites on this book. I know it was wild. Half a million. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I was working seven jobs at once. So that was like sort of the thing that got me back into writing. And I kind of dabbled in it here and there. And But this was like the first project that I like completed and then like reworked. And that book had a lot of, and like, I'm one of those people who I can get myself through the pitch and I can get myself through the query. And I guess I die on the page. <laughs> so like, I've always had a really good query success rate. I always have like a 70 or 80% full request rate that's wild wild. I know I can get you through a query but like I I I am the prime example of like what happens when the query is strong and maybe the pages don't live up to it I guess and so I wrote that book and when that book met its tragic little end uh, I mean it's not done I'm gonna Mm. I want to revisit it one day because I really do love that story in that world sounds amazing Uh, anyway I wrote a second book and I took one level back from fantasy because I was like okay we did second world fantasy that's fine and this is an idea that everyone they hear it and they're like that I want that it was the first time that I really was like I'm gonna put my disability on the page because like even in my Russian book all of the monsters were inspired by major surgeries I had so like some monsters were like they were really cold and frozen and so like they shaved down their appendages and their bones to like carve them into weapons or like this is so cool (laughs) they had this metal woven in and out of their skin and they could pull out these like dagger like basically their armor also turned into weapons anyway but I never like put disability on the page so in this one I was like I was talking with my mom I was like researching spinal fusions and just trying to find out more about myself because like a lot of stuff happened when I was a kid and I don't memory what is that I was like, mom, why don't I set off metal detectors? And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, my spine, my spinal fusions. Why, like, <laughs> oh my God. type in spinal fusions into like YouTube, the only thing you get are these like metal, like implantation into your spine thing. My mom was like, no, <laughs> your spinal fusions were done with cadaver bones. Wow. So there's even stuff about your own body that you had yeah. no idea no, until you like kind of delved into it further. That's wild. Yeah. So I have this idea of what if a girl has cadaver based spinal fusions and what if those bones that were used were the bones of a fairy king? And she's the only oh. person who can save the fairy realm. But fae, as we know, are very much attracted to beauty and not <laughs> disability. And so they also have to decide, is it better to die or mm. is it better to be saved by the last person they want to be saved by? Oh, my God. That's so creative. <laughs> I would read that in a heartbeat. So I wrote that book. Focus on my timeline, Gretchen. So between the Russian book and this fae book that I wrote, I was like 27. I was exhausted. My body could not take working seven jobs anymore. Um, and I put out a call to all of my friends from film school that I was like, I need a job with a benefit. Like, help me here. And a friend was like, would you want to be like Reese Witherspoon's personal assistant? Oh, damn. I know. <laughs> and I was like, does it have a benefit? I will get the coffee. <laughs> So my like resume went through like our friend to her friend to Reese Witherspoon's people and they called me in and I mentioned in the interview that I read 
like 200 scripts a year and 80 books. Whoa. Like, wow. wow. That is wild. Yeah. But also great that you could like put that skill, like, cause it's a skill yeah. to kind of pitch it to them, right? At Hello Sunshine. So then how do they take that? So like, I'm not even at Hello Sunshine yet. This is like her whole personal team. Oh, um, right. Okay. The interview goes well. I like send all my thank you notes. I don't hear anything. I'm like, well, you know, we'll find another job interview, whatever. Keep going. And then I get this email from the person I interviewed with that was like, hey, I'd like you to meet with these two people. And I was like, okay. And I like Googled the people she was having me meet with. And I was like, this was very early days of Hello Sunshine. Like, I think it's really hard now to be like, I work at Hello Sunshine. Everyone should know what Hello Sunshine was. Like Hello Sunshine, days of infancy. And I went to talk to Sarah Harden, who's the the CEO and was the interim CEO at that time. And like their head of digital development and basically like talked my way into a job. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with you right now. (laughs) Um, And was kind of just like, here's the books thing. And I like, you know, was talking about these are the books that I see and this is what I do and bookstagram and booktube. And they were like, what's a booktube? And I was like, well, this is what a booktube is. So you literally educated them on the book community. Correct. Wow. And so they offered me a job and they were like, we don't necessarily have a job, but we want to make a job for you. Will you work with us in terms of like what you, what you'll do here? And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like desperate for a job and a benefit. Um, And I think like the test of a company about women of like, I undersold myself. They were like, what's your like asking salary? And like Sarah came back in and she was like, when she offered me the job, she was like, I know that women undervalue themselves. So we're doubling your asking salary. Shut up. That is amazing. And like gives me such faith in people that it's not just about dollars and cents, right? Like it's about people and it's about like being good to people. I think that's, that's huge for me. Yeah. So that's where I was job wise. I was working. I've done a whole bunch of different stuff. For Hello Sunshine in my years there, I've read, I've produced audio projects when we had our Audible deal. I've worked closely with Book Club. I started Lit Up. You started Lit Up. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We can get to that. That's a whole other like. Yes, we will. I wrote this other book, this like bone book is like what I call it. This was like early 2020 that I was querying. I had an R&R from Dan Lazar. And was sort of working on it, trying to figure it out. Obviously, pandemic hits. I like have a complete total freak out because I'm living in LA. It's all over Los Angeles. And I basically like have a breakdown of like, I'm going to die. I'm high risk. Yeah, it was so scary, especially yeah. for high risk individuals. You know, they were at that time starting to run triage protocol at hospitals. Basically means that if you're like disabled, like automatically, like you're not worth saving. So I got in my car and I drove home thinking if I'm going to die, at least I die among family. Which again, oh super great thoughts here. It's so grim, but like it's reality, right? Especially when you've been in and out of hospitals your whole life and that's like it's your reality and what you're yeah. having to process, which is traumatic. Yeah. So I thought I was going to be there for two weeks and I thought this was going to be like some dumb thing. Like I was going to look back on this and laugh and be like, ha ha. I think it was like the middle of winter in Kansas. And because I was coming from California, I didn't pack a coat. Anyway, obviously, we all know that the end of the story is that 
it didn't just last two weeks. And so I came for two weeks and I stayed for 18 months. And in that time, I sort of let the R&R go of just like, I don't know if I'm doing this right now. And I decided to write, I'd had this contemporary idea and I had texted one of my friends who writes contemporary, whose name is also Emily. She was like, that, you have to write that. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it after my like litany of like fantasy ideas. And she's like, no, 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 no. You have to write that. So because I was home, my like parents and I, we all like sort of divvied up the chores. My mom did the laundry, my dad cleaned and I made dinner. And that was like the one thing I had to like worry about as an adult. But I decided to sit down and I wrote Ellie's first draft in seven weeks. Oh my God, that is crazy. Just like wrote it out, edited it, sent it out to a couple of like agents. I don't suggest querying a book where doctors may be seen as the ultimate antagonist during a pandemic where doctors are the hero. You're not going to get a good response. (laughs) So it didn't really work out. I entered pitch wars. I had two lovely mentors, Kara McDowell and Kimberly Gabriel, who love this book so much. I had a breakdown to my boss. And she's like, what is wrong? I was like, this is not about work. And she's like, I don't care if it's about work. That's really sweet. Poured my whole like, nobody wants my book out to her. And she was like, Gretchen, send me your book. And the next time I got on the one-on-one with her, she's like, Gretchen, we read a lot of YA. Gretchen, your book is better than most of the stuff we read. That's so good. She's like, we are getting this book published. (laughs) That is amazing, but it's also great, like having other people have faith in you. I think that's huge, like because a lot of writers, and I'm guilty of it. I know Sara's too. Like as debuts, like we a lot of times don't have a lot of faith in ourselves. We're going, oh my god, is yeah, it's the imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, and so then what ended up happening? I think I made Pitch Wars very, very angry. Angry? Don't don't worry, we did too. That's okay. So Sarah knew that I was editing the book and finally it was done. And Sarah goes, hey, can you email me the final copy of your book? And I was like, sure, here it is. And this was like two weeks before the showcase or whatever. So showcase comes around. It's like 48 hours before showcase starts. I'm in YA, so it's the second day or whatever. I get this email on my work email that's like, putting us all together. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, Sarah had sent my book over to CAA to the headlit agent at CAA and was like, oh my, god. oh my God. So I have the headlit at CAA, Kate Hoyt. And then she's like, I'm oh God. I cannot believe this is your first book. This is incredible. I'm looping you in with one of our great new fiction agents. She's so excited about it. And Alex was like, let's jump on a call. And I, because I don't know, imposter syndrome, dumbness, whatever. I like get on this call. I have not told anybody about this because I am 99.99999% sure that this call is just like the perfunctory, like, let me give you some advice. You know what I mean? Like, let me give you some notes or some advice, like whatever, whatever, whatever. So I have prepared not at all for this call. Not even a list of questions? Not even a list of questions. Like, what? I know, I know. So I get on the phone and Alex and I are exchanging pleasantries and she's, we sort of started the conversation and I finally have to stop her and I go, I'm sorry, Alex, what kind of call is this? And Alex goes, oh, I want 
with you. I'm offering you a call. This is like offer. Oh my god! Shut up! This never happens. Like you're like what? And I'm like start immediately g chatting my friend who has an agent has been published, and I'm like, what am I supposed to ask this person? Like. And she's like feeding me like normal questions to ask. That's a clutch friend. That's the kind of friendship you need. And then I get off the phone with Alex. I say like, I do have queries out, you know, two weeks. And she's like, I really don't want to say yes, but I know the best business character. So then I have to tell my Pitch Wars mentors, my pitch has already gone live. That I have an offer of representation and it is in no way my fault. Oh, shit. So in my like greedy little mind, I was like, you let this go. And then we just tell them all, like 24 hours of it closing, that I have an offer of representation and they have to get on it, right? Yeah. I think one of my mentors was on board with this plan. And then my other mentor, God bless her, because she's an angel. She's like doing the right thing. And I'm like, no, we don't do the right thing right now. We, we play the game. I'm into that. You know what? I believe in playing the game. I don't believe yeah. in following the rules. That's. I think that could have worked four years ago, five years ago. But like, not anymore. Yeah. And also for different types of authors, some types of authors, whether you're BIPOC or have different types of diversity needs or disabled, there's an aspect of playing the game that we all have to do, unfortunately. Yeah. So anyway, the other mentor, she she told the Pitch Wars people, they were very pissy with me. And I was like, this is in no way my fault, first of all. all. But, it, you know, I sent all my other stuff, you know, everyone else passed on it. And I was like, great, because I love Alex. So we signed on uh, spring 2021. I edited it all the way through the summer. And we went on sub in August. And it was a slow sub. I'm not going to lie. I lost faith. Like, Alex knows it. Like, she's the optimist. Mm. And I'm like, this book is dead. And she's like, uh, it is not dead. And she's like, and I'm like, it is in the ground. It is bones. It is buried. Like, no one's touching it. So finally, it came to the point where, like, I was going to be in New York. I was having, like, a work call with Wednesday and our book scout. And my book scout knew that I was going to be in town. And my book scout was like, well, Gretchen's going to be in town. And Wednesday was like, can we take her out to lunch for, like, the YA book club? Because uh, we did a lot of Wednesday titles. Never say no to a free lunch in New York. Exactly. That's my policy as well. Never say no to a free lunch. We're on our second round of submissions. Insane to me that it even got to that point, by the way. That's not bad at all. Like a lot of people get to second, third, fourth. But I just mean for you, like. Yeah. So I call Alex and I'm like, look, I'm having this lunch. If I have to say something, like I'm willing to like cross the professional author line, like the professional yes. line and bring the authorness into the conversation. And Alex is like, you know, let me assemble the council and I'll get back to you. Like Tuesday when I see you, I'll have a plan. So she comes in on Tuesday. She's like, okay, so here's how it's gone down. So I went back to Kate. Kate calls the head of St. Martin's, Jennifer Enderlin, and is like, hey, I hear you have this really great book. Where is it in your submission pile? So then the head of St. Martin's calls the head of Wednesday and is like, I hear you guys have this great book. Where is it? Oh, my God. (laughs) And basically, Alex is like, look, they may ask you something at lunch. And if they want to read it, feel free to be like, yes, of course. I'll like loop you in with Alex. This is wild. They may not say anything, but you, you don't have to bring it up at all. And I was like, great. Okay. I have lunch with Wednesday. And it's a great lunch. We have like champagne. It's amazing. Oh, wow. I get a call that evening. I see that it's Alex. And I'm like, hi, Alex. 
And she's like, congratulations, future published author. (laughs) And she's like, we have an offer from Wednesday. And she was like, here it is. This is what they're offering. We had a deal memo. Turns out Eileen, who had been at lunch, was she was like, I was already halfway through the book and so much wanted to be like, but can we talk about this? <laughs> at oh my God. So that is how Ellie came to be at Wednesday. Wow. It's such a wild that. journey because you basically kind of work in publishing and you've started so many projects, you've championed so many books. And so it's nice to know that this kind of has a happy ending. Like, your book is being championed. We have disability rep. But I'm still sad that it took you writing so many stories for you to be able to finally feel confident about the story. Yeah. I mean, and I think part of the reason that I even like I started Lit Up and sort of the things that were fueled that project were the things that I got in the query trenches or in the like submission trenches but like if this is what it's like for me and like I'm disabled but like I'm white I work at Reese's book club like if this is what I'm getting with you know a fair amount of like privilege behind me like it's got to be even worse if you like got multiple intersections or things like that and so like what the heck is wrong and how can we start alleviating it at every sort of pressure point in publishing right and so like that was like a big part of lit up you know, Reese always talks about like holding open a door and it's like, well, how can we use that power to like hold open a door? I feel like publishing is sometimes one of those doors that like splits open and it's like you have to hold open both parts at the same time to actually move the needle. Yes, that's such a good point. Like the upper portion or the bottom portion. After you got your offer from Wednesday and you decided to go with Wednesday, um, were there any specific things that you asked or requested to them about being sensitive to disability rep, like a sensitivity reader, for instance? Was there specific things that you just clarified to them? I did it. And he, okay, so here's the thing. I going to maybe be a controversial statement, but I'm going to like then explain it. I have sometimes a really hard time with sensitivity readers, mm. especially sometimes for disability. I think they can be really good, but I think you need to understand that you're reading for like the general overall look of the disability representation. Like, are you doing a super crip? You know, oh. are they there just to teach like the able population a lesson? Like you mm. have to like sort of look at these grandiose issues rather than like specific representation. Because like, I think even as I talk about like in the book, Ellie has bacterials like me. And there's another character in the book who also has bacterials, but has a different, presentation and so like finding somebody who has my exact presentation of back girls to do a sensitivity read to be like you know this this and this is really like impossible like I think I at one point did the whole like math like how many iterations of back girls can you have mm. and it was like a thousand well it goes to it for anyone getting a sensitivity read about a certain experience because there's so many different experiences so yeah. I had I had two sensitivity reads uh, and they both caught different things and they were both kind of saying different things and I kind of just have to be aware of that balance but it's true that not not everyone is having the same experience as that identity and so what does it mean right and one of my friends who has back girls also read the book and she really loved it but that was nothing that was done sort of at like the Wednesday level that was all things that I like 
had done like before I had even got Alex. Like Wednesday was very open about like if we say something, like if any of these notes are an issue, if they've if we've crossed a line, like please let us know. You know that's not the intention. Yeah. But Eileen was really really great. Her notes like made I think the story stronger, and we're never trying to change or ease the experience, but more bring out the full spectrum of it. If that makes sense. No, that definitely makes sense because my book, like it has many different issues, uh, but they're more ethnic and religious issue based. But I feel like there's this stereotype when it comes to people who have issues within the book, but then only want to reduce it to an issue book. So they feel like, you know, in notes or any edits, it just has to be about the specific issue you're talking about in a book when I don't think that's the case. I think a story is so much more than just one specific theme in the book. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's good that your editor was trying to bring out the full spectrum of the story while dealing with such a sensitive issue. I mean, and I think if anything, she was like more romance, more like there's a romance in the book, but she was like, I think trying to bring out some more of those like human aspects, because I think a lot of the like hospital medical aspects were already there I mean I think the one like sort of note that she was like maybe we do this and I was like absolutely not is that like spoiler alert I guess is that nobody gets like a medical happy ending neither Ellie nor her love interest Ryan sort of get that like you do this thing and it goes away and like ta-da And that was like really important to me because I don't think, I think we have this idea as a, as a population that medicine can fix everything. Exactly. I think one of the things that keeps coming up in the book, especially that Ellie keeps bringing up is that medicine is a hypothesis and you don't necessarily know. You sometimes have to live without knowing. And that can be hard. Yeah. And disappointing, but also you get to fall in love because of it anyway <laughs> I love that no that's realistic because we live in such an ableist world and also in my family we have so many different medical issues and disabilities and medicine is not the cure and also this like false notion of a happy ending is not not true for a lot of people with disabilities so I'm, I'm glad that you actually brought that up and that you've addressed that in the book it ends up being a lot of like I think a lot of disabled readers favorite part is that there is no happy ending like, there is no medical happy ending. There's a happy ending. Everyone ends up kissing. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, you don't get the, and now they're cured. You know, that life can still go on, which is, like, I think the theme of the book is that this isn't about an end journey. This is about how do you live day to day. I love that because we don't have a lot of disability rep, honestly, in terms of, especially in YA books that I can think of that are current and that are out there now. And that's an important kind of factor to bring to it as well, that it's not like the end isn't someone getting cured. It's just living their life and still having worth and love and romance and and all that stuff. In terms of when you got your book to y'all, and what you do as a job, like how did that influence like how you're approaching your debut year? And what can you tell us kind of about what you learned from being a book club curator? <laughs> I mean, it's very fascinating. There are a couple of things that like I realized, and this is maybe going to sound like really weird because I know we all worry about marketing, right? Like you go into our debut Slack I don't know how many of you do, but like I avoid it now because I just don't feel bad about myself at all times the moment I open it. Literally. Um, (laughs) Which is 
like, do I want to feel bad about myself? Don't mind if I do. Um, <laughs> like punishment. Now I'm glad I've only looked at it like two times and then I left. <laughs> yeah. So there, there are all these questions of, of marketing and who gets the marketing dollars. And I think this really big conversation of like, if I just had the marketing dollars of X book, I would be a bestseller. Yeah. One of the things I've seen is that, you know, I, in theory, work at one of the most powerful marketing tools publishing has or wants to have, I guess. We don't belong to any house. And we can do everything that we would normally do for a book. We can go above and beyond. And that book can still not hit the list. Yeah. Or not do this. You know, like we can be frustrated at the numbers that it does when we're like, we are doing everything we do. Why isn't it working? Yeah. And you realize like there is a portion of the audience that is just, you don't know. And it's arbitrary and it's frustrating because it doesn't matter. Like, again, we can do the same marketing and some things go on to do crawdads numbers and some books don't and you can't predict that right I think I've learned that it's sometimes all about like the harmony of everything working behind the scenes so sometimes when you start trying to triage it's like distribution and they didn't send enough books to the bookstore or Mm -hmm. it's you know you start to realize that it's not about marketing doing one thing it's about the whole machine working together So what would you say then to, I mean, there's a lot of talk about it in the industry right now, especially with that past um, trial, the Penguin trial, where they basically said, we don't know what sells a book and like they can throw money at it. But the idea that is if you throw no marketing at a book and no money at a book, it's almost guaranteed to not do well. So there's this idea that, yes, they could throw money at a book and it doesn't really, you know, maybe take off the same way, but there has to be something done for it. Otherwise it's, it's not going to do anything. And, and I, I, usually an author can't control that, although we are seeing some different things in the TikTok world, but usually the person that controls whether or not it's selling anything or moving anything is the publisher and it is marketing, even if they're bad at it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think there's also like with most things, I think there's a tiered system what you might call like a minimum viability product of like, there's a minimum viability marketing number of like, if we do this number, we can be sure of like this kind of return. Like I'm sure somebody yeah. somewhere has like an algorithm or a spreadsheet that you can put, like you can plug in. Like if we spend this on this, then we can do this. But I think it's also then on the flip side of that, I know several like marketers who work in the business. And I think even again, seeing behind the scenes, you see that like companies have two marketers for a list of 20 books. And no matter how much they do, they're two people trying to manage like 10 books each. You know, again, it's like once you start opening the door, it's again, you're, you're, you have to open the whole door together and you're only mm-hmm. opening like to just say that like, well, 
if there's no marketing, there's not there. It's like, well, you open that door and it's like, yes, but what other things are the, is that marketer trying to do? I've heard a lot of like, there's front facing marketing and then there's marketing to like internal groups. So like I've yeah. heard people say that it's like, if we put this book here, it's just going to get a lot of hate. But if we spend the marketing dollars in their like fan groups, we can get actually a better return off of that. So I think it's understanding a, everyone is human. Nobody, and I don't want to sound like I'm like shilling for publishing here, but like, I don't think anyone can, <laughs> would never accuse you of that. Don't worry. Everybody always wants to assume it. Like in that question mm. is like the assumption that like there is somebody in a, like a room that's got like the chiaroscuro lighting and they're like slightly twirling yeah. their mustache. Of, yeah. like, I'm here to be evil and decide people's fates. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a lot less calculated is maybe going to seem like that. Like, I don't think it's literally like they're trying, they're looking at a list and being like, we're not going to invest in this person and we're not going to invest in this person. I think it's literally like an overworked system with too few people and too many books. And I would agree with that too. And it's hard to balance everything, obviously. And every author, you know, wants to be a lead title and wants to have all this marketing and you don't, there's maybe two that get that, right? Right. And I say that as somebody who like has had a very, contrary to like the getting there, has had a very like privileged publishing journey so far. Like once I got Mm. there, I'm aware of that too. I just, because I see a how the sausage is made and B also experience it as an author, yeah. it humanizes both sides because I get yeah. the like, I want to be the sparkly princess. Yeah. And I want my publisher to care about me. And it, it never feels good to tell somebody like, you're not going to get this. Yeah. You know, or you're no, not fair. going to do this. And you mentioned um the front facing marketing versus like the behind the scenes team. I think we talked to another author here that was like, there's so much that we actually don't see, right? We don't see them yeah. how they're pitching to libraries or when they're pitching to libraries, which is what I assume you're talking about behind the scenes teams and because you get pitched by publishers, right? There's so much pitch emails. There's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes like that. Yeah, like whether it's libraries and like usually libraries is a whole team. Yes, Macmillan has its own team. And yeah, like I think yeah. I've all emails every day. I think most of the hustle for a lot of YA books is just library and book and indie yeah. like associations. Yeah. And, and I think then you have to dissect like, especially in YA, are you going more for like the actual teen audience, which is going to be more of a, of a library focus? Mm-hmm. Or are you trying to go for that like, commercial audience which is like more adult focused you know Mm -hmm. and like that's where you get into the conversation of like YA is being pushed too far into the adult realm or you know this that and the other Mm -hmm. I have friends who are still booksellers and they're like oh the teens actually buy these titles but these are the titles that end up on the New York Times oh wow so when you talked about um publishers pitching you how do they pitch to get the book to you and then how does that become you going okay yeah I'll read that I'm gonna be a little vague about this if only because I haven't necessarily cleared this before yeah that's okay it's kind of everything in the kitchen sink right because like at any point a marketer is trying to get to me and you know is under the belief that if I will just read this pitch and just open the book I will fall in love with it and I will like pass it along the thing right like that's the dream and we get books from all over we have a book scout we have two book scouts but one primarily one who just works with book club and he takes a lot of the general meetings in publishing because he's in New York 
Sometimes I'll take calls with publishers. Uh, if like we're working with a new publisher for the first time during like some mm. of our first meetings before we bring in like the author for book club, we'll talk a little bit about like if you want to pitch us something like, you know, we appreciate not just a general blast, but we appreciate like a you understand what we're looking for. This is the things that we love. These are the things that we would love to see from your list you know so don't just send us your entire list but send us like your top five titles that you think we would like oh interesting okay in your answer you mentioned how okay teens are buying these books but then it's these more commercial books that are still YA but it's mostly adults buying them those are the ones that end up on the list yeah so can you maybe touch on that a bit more if you have insight maybe in your experience also if you've noticed specific trends, because I feel like this goes back into the idea of trends in YA. Okay, so this is back to my days as a bookseller. And like, there would be books that you would stock at the beginning of your shift, meaning you would like put 10 more copies on the shelf. And by the end of your shift, they would just be gone. And they were selling like, you know, 10 and 20 copies a week. But like, they were these like, thrillers like the third twin or something like if you were like what and then you were like oh yeah I remember reading stuff like that when I was a teenager yeah. um but there were these things that like teens would just come up and like word of mouth grab but they weren't like Lee Bardugo Victoria you know they weren't the sort of like usual suspects of the YA world mm-hmm. um and a lot of that mm-hmm. still like continues on today it's changed a little bit I think since thriller now is like an active market in YA, when yes. I was a bookseller, thriller was still very niche and very like, we don't write thrillers, we write, 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 you know, like it was kind of a looked down upon thing to write YA thrillers. Um, and now it's become a whole booming part of, of contemporary YA lit. And now a lot of my bookseller friends are like, well, now a lot of teens buy manga. And that's really where they're going. So that's like sort of like what the teens themselves in a store will gravitate toward. When you start talking about the list, the list has so many intricacies. And someday if I ever wanted to do like an investigative journalism piece, it would be (laughs) like track down the algorithm. There should be. There should be an investigative journalism piece. (laughs) I've seen so many different facets of it from like working. I worked at a Barnes and Noble. You learned that like, different stores so like indies are based on sell-through but box stores like amazon and barnes and noble are based on ship to store so basically what that means is it doesn't matter what crosses our pos system it's what comes into our store from the publisher itself so like the publisher could game the system by saying we're going to ship every store in america 200 books and that book debuts at number one Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, very intricate, just like you said. And that was like something I saw, which is why kind of publishers now don't like Daunt a little bit, because Daunt coming in to Barnes and Noble put a stop to that. Yeah. And said, no, we're not going to be your warehouse. Because what would happen is we would get those 200 copies, those 200 copies sit on our shelves for three months. And three months later, because so the way book buying works for a bookstore is you buy the books at a wholesale price. There's then a period of time where you have to hold on to that inventory before you can ship it back and return it for the same price. In this example, we got 200 copies in, we sold three copies, and three months later, I shipped 197 copies back oh, to the publisher. So that model is gone now. Yeah. 
which is why when you look at your royalty statement, when you see the the line that's held against return, that's what they're holding against. They're holding against us being able to ship back copies that we haven't sold. Mm, Because technically that's showing up on your royalty statement as sold. So Dot got rid of that sort of policy of like, yeah, we'll be your warehouse. And we're actually going to start trying to sell books. Now, there are pluses and minuses to that conversation, as we have all since seen. And then you have like, when you're comparing like the New York Times list to like, like something like the book scan list, it's not always like a one to one ratio, which is how you know that like, the New York Times list is a curated list, versus like what we actually know. The numbers don't add up. The numbers don't change. So like what could be number one on the New York Times could actually be number four in terms of book scan sales for the week. Ah, I see what you're saying. And the New York Times has freely admitted this, that it is not a one-to-one sales number, which is why some people prefer the USA Today list, which is more pure numbers based. Um, We've had other authors come on and talk about this, but basically I think the consensus is that it's just, it's a curated list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the New York Times, I think, says it on their website that like, this is a curated list. Like there's some kind of algorithm. There's a weight to indie bookstores versus box stores or whole like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You know, it's a whole like mysterious process. When I say that I would just be fascinated to like somebody pay me a lot of money and I will go like figure it out because I think everybody wants to know how to like game the system or like figure yeah. out the system whatever that Lelaney Saran book, like everyone likes to say, this is the one time, you know, like whatever. And I was like, no, that just shows that the list can be gained. Mm. Like, and if you think it can be gained by one person, do you not think that a publisher has ever gained the system? You're talking about that book that deliberately put in those huge orders right. at the certain New York Times reporting books stores. And then they got number one in the New York Times because right. of that. That was the huge kind of drama at the time. And it was, they definitely gained that system for sure. They gained that system. But, but I think everyone thinks that just because they gamed it, that it is otherwise ungameable. And I'm like, no, no, publishers have been gaming this system for years this just proves it can be done and you can do it yourself that's such a morbid thought and i agree but like but i'm like that's how they did it like you know the 200 200 copies to every barnes and noble in america number one new york times bestseller well since we're talking about gaming the system (laughs) being a book club curator but also being an author um you know you're in the book community you you know a lot about being a bookseller as well Have you noticed specific trends in books that you're receiving? Like I could separate this into two conversations, but in terms of like trends in like the adult market, I definitely think though, like the thing, I love a thriller. Like we obviously love a thriller at book club. I think it's becoming harder and harder to write a, I don't want to say a good thriller, but a thriller that doesn't feel like, Oh, I've seen this thriller 20 times before, but on the heels of that, I think there's a lot of really good, like thrillers by minority writers coming out. And maybe that sounds horrible to say, but like, you know, I think about like House in the Pines was so good. I just read a thriller by a Black author yesterday that was like incredible. So I like as much as like trends sort of pass by, it's like you're still like hunting for those gems and those gems are coming through in different ways. I don't know if that gives like hope or not hope. (laughs) Uh, It's terrible to say. I don't think necessarily as much in adult fiction, there are as many trends. There are definitely like you get read-alikes, you know, I think about like when crawdads happened, everyone and their mother had their like girl in the wilds, 
you know, sort of pseudo thriller. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that responds to it or Gone Girl, right? Like all the yeah, like so you always have those kinds of like responses to like things that sort of echo down, but much like they do in sort of YA, as like if you think about like when the Hunger Games came out, you had this sort of like rain down of like the dystopian era you sort of just start getting like a copy of a copy of a copy you just get sort of like lower and lower quality in terms of YA specifically I think children's literature as a whole is having a crisis moment you hear it every day and like I saw the beginnings of it as a bookseller I haven't been a bookseller in a decade but like you would see parents who were trying to have their kids come up out of middle grade and really find something in YA that I hate to use the term age appropriate, but like something that they would be like, you know, I just finished reading Percy Jackson, but I'm not necessarily going to go to a court of thorns and roses as a 12 year old or a 13 year old. Right. And so some of those like sort of squishy middle ground between middle grade and YA really started to disappear. Yeah. And I think the bar has just been pushed higher and higher. I agree. Especially as you get fantasy authors who are basically writing 30-year-olds and calling them 18, you know? Yeah, there was even the art print that went a little viral with all the controversy. So I, I think there's that. I think there was going to come a change for two reasons. One, I think a lot of people fled YA a lot, like probably three to four years ago to write middle grade. I have several middle grade author friends. I don't have a middle grade voice. And so I think... My hope is that all the YA authors who fled to middle grade don't corrupt middle grade the way we maybe corrupted YA and pushed middle grade into being the new YA. And anyway, like it's just like a continuing cycle of what you push next. And I think a lot of YA authors have also fled YA to write romance. I think that's where the sort of line is now really getting crossed, where if you want that spice, you don't have to read a YA novel anymore. You can yeah. read an adult novel. And I think YA, I hope, is going to have some kind of revolution in and of itself of what is the next iteration of YA. And it's not going to be like the baby adult or the spicy romance. I am hoping that we get something like, what is it that teenagers want to read about today or middle grade people? Like, Because I think sometimes we forget that there's this whole trend as a child in reading that you read up. So that like a 12 year old may read about teenagers, teenagers may read about adults and things like that. And so I think that's also something to consider as we like sort of move forward. Yeah. You're going to have those students who want to read at their same age level, but you're also going to want to have kids who want to read the next iteration of themselves. I 100% agree. And I think that's why we're all writers. Exactly. In terms of themes or like like trends. I mean, honestly, fantasy seems to be having a moment. Is fantasy having a moment? Or like the trappings of fantasy are having a moment with romance? So I I mean, this has been an amazing conversation because it's touched on so many things. I feel like you're just a wealth of knowledge with working at a book club and working at a bookstore, like as a bookseller, but also a debut author who is so well-versed on like disability rep and things like that, which I think is really something we don't, we don't have access to a lot 
you mean all the times that I ask you, do you want the truth or do you want me to just let you be happy? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you always tell me the truth, which I'm appreciative of. We always kind of close off our interviews with kind of a, a hard question, but did you have any hard truths that you learned along the way in your journey, either in publishing or to being a debut author to get to where you are today? Oh, man, how many lessons do I have time for? I think, again, because I think my journey was so weird. Again, I went to film school because I was afraid of an MFA. I think that truth would be, don't be afraid of your tastes. I lost myself for a long time. And the only thing that will make you different in this world, anyone can learn how to write a book, anyone can learn how to make a movie. The only thing that will set you apart is your taste and what you like and how you like it. Um, so never be afraid of that. It's okay not to feel things and do things the way everybody else feels. I think right now this will probably be out several months later, so it will not have been on my Instagram, but a lot of people ask me like, how does it feel to like hold your book or like see your book in real life now or whatever. And for me, it's very much a very like complicated feeling. I don't have a lot of those like watch me cry while opening my arcs, which I think is a very standard author video now. I don't feel that necessarily because there's so much, there's so much that it can feel like it took to get to this point. And a lot of that is really hard. And a lot of that is still feeling like, as much as I have like a writing community around me and I have friends who support me and love me and you're all very great to invite me on this podcast, it can feel very alone where like I can count on like one hand, the number of disabled authors that are going to like welcome me into the fold as it will, or will be like sort of my like compatriots in this process. Right. As much as this is like a universal experience, it can also feel very lonely. And I think some of those moments remind me how lonely it can be when you're trying to explain something to people that they never read before or where they have actively read things that have taught them the wrong thing. And so don't be afraid to not have those feelings and that it doesn't make you wrong and it doesn't make you not happy that you have a book deal or grateful or excited. That's so validating to hear. (laughs) Thank you. I I mean, so yeah, so it's one of those things that I've really tried to do. And I, I go back to... I have this weird thing with Ellie where I've attached a documentary in my head to Ellie and not like a documentary, like I'm filming a documentary of Ellie's life, like a real life documentary. So I don't know if you're familiar with the documentary Free Solo, which is about a man who is climbing El Capitan in Yosemite without a rope. He gets to the top of the mountain and he like, you would think that like, he's going to be like, I did it. And he's like, they're like, how you doing? And he's like, I am delighted. And that's like all he says, you know, and he's very sort of like, yeah, it did that thing. I'm delighted. And so that's kind of become like the mantra that I've like tried to adopt throughout this whole thing, even as I have a lot of these like conflicting emotions is that I am delighted that I've done this really big thing. And that's why it's been such a delight to have you on the podcast. I think you've done such a great job giving an insight about your journey, especially when it comes to disability rep, 
but also talking about different insights that a lot of our listeners are really keen about. Um, and I think particularly the fact that YA has grown to be a genre that has a lot of crossover. And there's been a lot of different existential crises for writers like us who also yeah. want to write about such important subjects, but aren't sure how we fit exactly when a lot of the craze is fantasy or it's romanticy, for instance. Yeah. Also just enjoy the ride, embrace the chaos. Yes. To wrap up our episode, what we love to do with our guests is a very quick, fast round question. You have to give us your most honest answer. Hit me. Choose between the two. There's only one bed or tending to the love interest's wounds. Only one bed. Oh, I'm judging you. I'm judging you. I love tending to the love interest. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a hurt comfort girly. Yeah, Sarah's very passionate about that one. <laughs> yeah, don't think it's, it's entirely disability related. <laughs> So only one bed. That's fair. That's fair. I never thought of that. That actually, yeah, that's a really good point. Okay. Writing at a cozy beach house or in a cottage in the forest? Forest. Ooh, same here. Quick advice for anyone wanting to break into script writing or film. Just one sentence. Ask everyone you know if they know someone in the industry. I love that. And I would say the same thing about the publishing industry. Okay. What's the number one thing people do wrong in a query? Too much backstory and you don't get to the hook fast enough. They're too precious with the details of their world, usually because I'm reading fantasy queries, and you don't get to to the meat of it fast enough. You don't get to the emotional hook. You don't get to the narrative hook. And you just include too much. I love that. Fantasy or contemporary, if you had to pick one? Fantasy? Fantasy. I love that. I love how we both have contemporary books coming out, but like, I'm also just a diehard fantasy fan. I'm like, how fast can I get back to my fantasy route, Eileen? Yes. I was like, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yes. Okay. Last question. Yeah. One little known fact that someone might not realize about celebrity book clubs. I mean, I can't speak for all celebrity book clubs, mm-hmm. but Reese reads every book and it's actually her decision. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Love that. I will respect that a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gretchen, yeah, for being no. on the podcast. It was honestly like one of the most insightful conversations that I've had. Yes. Um, you really just blew our mind when it came to some of the behind the scenes of, and even trying to break into film and publishing like you've had such a unique journey and we are so thankful that you came on this is great i'm always happy to be like here were my misadventures it's been a wild ride exactly and it's amazing that you shared your journey with us thank you so much it's been a joy talking to you it's been so much fun Thank you for listening to On The Right Track Podcast. Visit us online on Instagram at On The Right Track Podcast. Subscribe, leave a review, rate, and share with a friend wherever you listen. This show is hosted by Emily Varga and Sarah Mughal Rana. Our editor is Abby Cirquitella. If you'd like to support us, please visit the links in our show notes to find more about how. 